CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I wanted to set, to set up, for anyone who doesn't know these guys, a little bit of uh, a context. So if we can play the presentation. Oh, wow. There we go. Our good friend Bobby. Yeah. So Bobby started in streetwear, 2003. Uh, he and his partner Ben. Uh, you did it while you were in law school together, correct? Yeah, we met each other in school, in law school. I'm a uh, lawyer. I'm a lawyer. He's a lawyer as yeah. well. Uh, they started it in a one bedroom behind an In-N-Out burger in Venice. Um, for me, these guys were doing streetwear before streetwear was really a thing, before Louis Vuitton was doing streetwear, before Gucci was doing streetwear, the Hundreds was doing streetwear. And uh, I think Bobby has done an amazing job at sort of being a champion for that industry as much as Web3 as we'll get to. Um, in 2008, Bobby was named number 13 on the 13 under 30 of coolest young entrepreneurs by Forbes magazine. Oh, you just dated me. <laughs> That was a very long time ago. I'm just throwing it out there. And that was the last time I was cool. <laughs> uh, he counts Jay-Z, Julie Louis-Dreyfus, Dustin Hoffman, Nas, and Jonah Hill are all fans of your brand. Yeah. Bobby and Ben's journey was one of the things that inspired HBO to make the show How to Make It in America. Yep. As, and he was, also, yeah. uh, he was also a consultant on the show. Um, he is also the author of two books, which we will talk about in a second. All right. Mr. Kevin Rose? I feel like, Bobby, we were both younger in our photos. <laughs> yeah, we like, were. That's like minus seven or eight years. From yeah, now. I found early photos. That was pre-NFTs. <laughs> yeah, it was pre-NFTs. Yeah, so that's less gray it hairs. It wasn't the pandemic that ruined us. That's it was right. The last two years of Web3. That's right. Yeah. Kevin founded the social news site Dig, <clears throat> excuse me, as well as the intermittent fasting app Zero, which has not worked for me. I just want to throw that out there. Uh, the meditation app Oak. Uh, he's also a partner in True Ventures. CEO of Proof Collective. Kevin was very early to the podcasting game with uh, the Dignation podcast. I believe you're on the Jimmy Fallon show because of it. Um, you also started a podcast in 2009 with Tim Ferriss called The Random Show. Uh, there is a clip on there of Kevin showing Tim what Ethereum is for the first time that Tim had ever seen it. Also, big investor, Twitter, Foursquare, Square, Facebook, Blue Bottle Coffee. Is that true? So. Uh, knows how to throw some money around. When I was doing some research, I thought it was interesting because I found that both of them had started their brands around the same time. So Bobby started in 2003, Kevin 
in 2004. And I thought there was just like a lot of interesting sort of synergies about how these brands had worked together. So, Kevin, you're also the most famous man on the internet. Oh, no. In 2000. You're digging in the archives now. <laughs> this is when there was like 10 people on the internet. Right, so. there's 10 people on. One of them was Kevin Rose. Um, and Bobby, you have a point of view, which we're gonna talk about in a second as well. Anyone who's on Twitter, I'm sure most of you are not, but if you go to Sam Ewen, S-A-M-E-W-E-N, I asked the question an hour ago, uh, are NFTs a scam? And only the, the best 10 wrong answers will win a copy of this book, we'll send it to you. So if you wanna jump in on the Twitter game, please feel free. I'm gonna start though and just say, Bobby, are NFTs a scam? Oh boy, we're gonna start off, with, okay. Um, I cannot answer that question, but I urge you to pre-order the book to find out the answer. And in fact, even in the epilogue, because I know everyone's jumping straight to the finale to know what the verdict is, and it's kind of my takeaway message with all of this, is that we are in such a rush to make judgments and verdicts on not just technology, but people, on culture, on the world in general, that we're not allowing technology or innovation to grow and breathe, right? And so that's really the moral of the story here is that everyone was so quick to grab a pole in the NFT race. You know, me, I'm obviously pro NFT. And so in 2020, 2021, I was making very declaratory and proclamations about how Web2 is dead and this is the only way and the truth, you know, almost became very zealous and religious in that sense. And then you had the other poll of people who were very staunchly against it and thought they were entirely a scam and there was no redemption or redeeming value out of NFTs. And the reality is that it's a fluid conversation that continues to grow. And I think there are valid points on both sides, but they're getting us closer and closer to truth. But it's so early, we're, we really are still, still so early that we need to allow the progress to breathe and maturate organically, and I think 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we still won't really have a clear answer as to what that is. The internet is still very much scammy. The Nigerian prince email scandal that we remember the internet being in the early years still exists. $700,000 a year, they still get out of people doing that scam. And that scam actually goes back centuries and almost millennia. And so I think that's an evolved, that's always an organically living, growing conversation that it's way too early to put a stamp on it. All right. Yeah, I think what you're, you're saying more or less, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like, it's almost like any technology can be used for good or, or bad purposes. And, 100%. And for me, when I think about NFTs, I just think of it as a new standard that is, for some people a new canvas and a new way to paint and a new way to collect. For other people, it can be high frequency trading of commodity pixelated art that turns into just almost like penny stock trading in some sense. And so it, it really is the application of the technology. Nothing about the technology is flawed. It, it's really how you apply it and who the founding team is behind that tech. So actually, if we can kill the slides now just have a conversation, that'd be great. Um, what I love about both of you guys is you started building in Web 1, you both sort of came out in Web 2, and now you're, you've evolved into Web 3, which is not me calling us all old, right? But I think that 
you, you all continue to, to innovate. And so Kevin, I want to start with you. You know, as someone who's like just continues to think about this space and the evolution and how sort of messy it can be. I mean, the title of the session is, what will history say about this moment? So what's your answer to what history will say about this moment in Web3? Well, it's hard because the, the, the actual active users in this space is such a blip. In some sense, this may just all be forgotten in terms of this moment of there being this down market. Like, they might not, no one might even remember that. Like, NFTs could turn into a technology that is pervasive, that is useful, and they'll never remember the little scammy components of it that happened because it only impacted several hundred thousand people. So, you know, in my mind, to your point about it being early days, I, I, I feel like this is just, it's, it's too soon to call it. I, it's, it's a shame to me that, and this is a lot of like, some of the, the downsides to it, because it is such an echo chamber, because Twitter is such a great platform for amplifying and giving everyone a microphone, it's easy for them to call out and say, you know, this project's a scam, this is not, but we're like a year in. And it turns out that historically, this is true for Web3 as well, great businesses are built over four, five, 10, 20 years, not six or eight months. And so to judge a technology or a founding team based on three, six, eight months a year, I think is premature. And so Bobby, I wanna ask you, if you look at it through a cultural lens, your brand is, so, is culture. And not only is Web3 a technological shift, but it's a cultural shift, right? That's right, yeah. And so if you think about through the cultural lens, what do you think people will say about this moment? Artists, royalties, community yeah. building, all of the stuff we're doing now. I think that might be the moment and the truth that transcends all of this, and is that um, I think that technology can be kind of dense, complicated. Uh, some of it might not sustain or survive on the, on the vine very long. But I think one of the features of Web3 that is gonna continue to revolutionize and impact other cultures and industries, we're actually already seeing out in other markets and other sectors of, of the world. Uh, one of those is reshaping and rebalancing the structure between brands and consumers. Um, there's a really great movie out right now called Air. I don't know if any of you have watched this movie yet. Uh, Betty from Deadfellas and I got to see an early screening of this film. And most people are understanding it as how Michael Jordan first signed his Nike Air Jordan deal. And it's really exciting, just exactly straightforward what you'd think. We came out of the movie going that was the most Web3 movie ever because Jordan's mom insisted that Michael got a cut of every shoe moving forward. It was transformative, not just for shoe endorsement deals, but for how all people were looking at the relationships between companies and consumers. And what's insane to me is that story is 40 years old and was so innovative and disruptive back then, but still in 2023, we're watching that story unfold and saying, this is crazy that the company allowed this to happen. And it helped everybody. Obviously, Nike won the shoe wars, became the biggest sportswear company on the planet. And that moral is gonna continue. The production company that made that movie is Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's production company. It's called Artists Right. And their entire model is predicated on the fact that their producers, filmmakers, writers are all getting a cut 
of the projects, which is also very revolutionary for Hollywood. So I think that's going to continue to invade or affect other types of industries and the ways that we think about brands. The question I want to so I think about this a lot. We in Web3 talk a lot about Chris Dixon's 1,000 True Fans, right? But Nike wouldn't support, be supported by 1,000 True Fans. Nike needs 10 million True Fans. The hundreds needs a million True Fans. So do we sometimes do ourselves a favor by almost thinking too small? Maybe Kevin, you want to say, like, like when you think of Dig, you had to create a giant thing that justified the amount of effort, time, investment that went into it. And have we sold ourselves this bill of goods that says, oh, if we just get these people to collect and these people to collect, and each of you have collections, 25,000 here, you know, I think your proof is what, 1,000 to begin with? And then, you know, and then Moonbirds is 10,000. Like, these are still tiny amounts of people. Do we have to just think bigger and broader in order to think of ourselves actually as brands versus communities and, and collections? Kevin, why don't you take that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, the, the question is, is an interesting one in that I oftentimes think about, you know, what allows someone, when they think about a brand, to feel an affiliation with that brand? Like, does someone have to actually own an NFT to want to own a t-shirt from said NFT? And the nice thing and the benefit of cryptocurrency is that it's divisible you know, by eight decimal places. So I don't have to have and hold just one Ethereum. I can hold $5 worth of Ethereum and be a fan. Mm -hmm. NFTs, although we've tried fractionalization, they're not divisible like that, unless you're nouns. So there is, there's, a, there's something we're working on that we're thinking about how can we give people their own agency to create uh, the, the, the how, how do I say this without like, telling the whole thing. We, we, we really Alpha. Want, no, we, we want it to expand in a way that is thoughtful and not based on our own just, here's another 10,000 collection. Like, why does the world need that right now? It doesn't. And so we want to make sure that it's driven by demand and at price points that are approachable and not something that is just for the ultra wealthy. Mm -hmm. And I think that is when you start to see more and more adoption and loyalty around a brand, uh, and a little bit of ownership. So, you know, when I was a kid, if you went out and you bought a comic book and you paid $20 for it, and five years later it was worth 200, you were stoked. Like, that was a huge win. Mm -hmm. And for some reason in NFTs, like, if we don't buy something, we have to spend ten, fifteen thousand $15,000, and then it's not a win unless it's a half a million dollars, right? So, I think we just need to a little uh, recalibrate a little bit here and, and figure out what is the new norm now that everything has gone to shit. <laughs> anyway, but let me ask you, and, and Bobby, you can take the first. Both of you have had collections that have mooned, right, and been worth a ton of money, and then have settled down to other floor prices. It doesn't like, I own both of your assets. I don't think differently about you guys that, in, in terms of whether that has affected my emotional relationship. But there are those who are saying, hey, Bobby, a bomb used to be one ETH, and now it's 0.3. <laughs> What's going on here? And as, as founders, how do you guys emotionally manage communities of people who are just trying to get little bits of edge? That's a tough one. That's a tough one because there's two sides to that coin. There is someone that sold a Moonbird at 40 ETH, 
that bought it for two and a half that gives me the biggest hug and tells me I paid off my college tuition with it. And then there's the other person on the other side. And so it is, we really didn't, I don't, I can't speak for you, but I didn't anticipate this. Like, no. I really thought it was going to be this thing where you kind of figure out what the market demand is, you launch something and then plus or minus 10%, you know, over the next few months would probably be the ride that we're all going to be on, right? And we can all build great products, deliver towards that, have fun with it, create a great community, and everyone's having a great time at a few thousand dollars to get into this. And it's a club that we joined for multiple years, unlike many of the other clubs that exist today in the physical world, right? When that shoots up to hundreds of thousands of dollars, expectations are way out of whack, right? And so that's when it, it really, because it's uncapped, it really screws with people. And, and, it's, and it's heart-wrenching to hear that, unfortunately, stories get told and retold about how this is the next gold rush, and people want to, you know, they sometimes overcommit their capital to it, and they're upside down. And so when they lose that money, it's, it's just a tragedy. And, and so that's, that's something that we, we think a lot about on how we thoughtfully move into this market in a responsible way going forward. You can go back historically and search all my tweets and I never talk about floor price. Right. And that was on purpose. It still didn't help. Like still right. things got out of control, but it's, it is the challenge of NFTs and, and the dynamic 24 seven trading of them. Yeah, um, when we, Got into when I dived into NFTs at the end of 2020, I was looking at it strictly from the lens of one of one art, uh, which I still think is one of the most valuable corners of what Web3 can be in terms of, of making JPEGs and putting them on the blockchain. Um, so, our intentions in building out this collection were pre Yuga and pre Board Ape. And that summer of 2021, for people who don't quite know or weren't around to experience this, um, really affected and disrupted and reshaped how a lot of people considered these PFP-style NFTs. And everyone looked at them as they were going to get rich quick. And we really had no intentions of building out a project like that. We'd come from streetwear. And we actually weren't even in the arena of street where that was predicated on reselling. It was more about collecting. And so we weren't even built for that. We just wanted to make a great collectibles project, which is what we're continuing to do and doing the long game. But I know that there were people that were probably jumping in thinking, well, if I hold this one, it's going to go to the moon. It was really hard. And in fact, speaking of Betty, Betty, our relationship started because at that time, there were so few founders like us in the space and behind the scenes, we were all scrambling and looking for each other in the dark because we were like, what the f is happening? And now, you know, we put out these projects and we thought at that time you put out a collection and your work is not done, but like the big heavy part of the piece is done. And I ran into Matt Colin, who's Steve Aoki's manager and Steve and Matt have been doing so much great NFT work. Matt lives a few doors down from me. And I ran into him the next morning and he's just like, ah, oh, you made the mistake. You thought the work was done. This is where the work begins, right? And I reached out to Betty because someone, and I forgot who put us in touch, but Betty had just launched Deadfellas a month before ours and she had already been experienced enough and been a veteran and, and listening to the community. And she's like, all right, this is what's going to happen. This is what we have to do now. But it was a crazy time. And I asked my therapist every week, can I pay you an Ethereum? And she's just like, I don't know what that is, but no. 
And uh, that's where all my money went, if anyone wants to know why I'm not driving a Lamborghini. I feel like I have to both credit you and blame you for every NFT project putting a black hoodie on someone <laughs> yeah. who is a collector, right? For anyone who doesn't know, Bobby and the Hundreds were really the first collection that token-gated commerce around being able to buy if you were a holder. Yeah. And I think that was a revolutionary moment. Yeah, well, we were the first project, our brand, to officially collaborate with CryptoPunks. I don't even think Punks has done anything like on that scale since. Uh, we made these hats that were really controversial at the time, early 2021. And then we did the Board Ape hoodie and t-shirts. I don't know if anyone remembers that. But yeah, we were pretty early in doing that. And then everyone started making merch and then every NFT project started turning into a streetwear brand for a, a, a season there. And that was a not very good streetwear brand. No, I understand why, you know, even when we were talking to Matt and John from Larva Labs in late 2020, early 2021, and we met with Gordon Garg with Yuga, you know, they were all inspired by what streetwear had done as far as drop mechanics were concerned, as far as community building was concerned, as far as forging these brands. And so they were inspired so much by what streetwear was doing and they were really confused by watching someone like me going the wrong direction. They were like, oh, we're all trying to get to you and build this global brand. And I'm like, no, I'm trying to get to you and be like an NFT collectibles project. And we all somehow met in the middle, but yeah. All right, I want to change tenor a little bit. Both of you had, have had amazing successes. Both of you guys have had a fair amount of challenges, whether it's you know, team members, whether it's collections, whether it's relationships with, with different platforms. Uh, I guess I'm sort of, interested on, the, on the, the culture of high expectation and how hard it is to ever actually meet it so that everything gets judged based on today's opportunity versus, you know, or, or tomorrow's promise versus today's opportunity. What have you guys learned from the failures in the projects you guys have worked on? Kevin, want to start with you? Sure, yeah. So I think Web3 um, really encouraged all of us to build in public and to put everything out there. And I took that to its most extreme, meaning that we wanted to show anything and everything that was a back of the napkin idea and talk about it early and talk about the fact that we would like to pursue these different directions. Any of the large companies that I've worked with in the past, I think Google's probably the best example. When I was at Google, we probably launched about 20% of the things that I actually saw and played with in the labs because they just never, we had this thing internally, it was thing, Googlers out there know, it's like they called dog fooding. It's like this site you can sign up to and then you can download all the experimental stuff. And almost none of it made it because it was just for us to play and test and say, is there anything here worth iterating on and pursuing and taking one step further. That doesn't mean to launch it, but just taking it to the next level. So you'd install a dog food app and sometimes it would be gone three months later and sometimes it would turn into, you know, Google Drive, right? And so what we did is we put all of our dog food out there and we said, this is the stuff we're gonna pursue. And then we went and did the typical product iteration cycle, which is prototype, test internally, vibe it out, how does it feel, iterate, and then either kill it or get it to some type of you know, MVP that you can actually get people kicking the tires on it. So that was a huge mistake because most people aren't used to that type of product iteration and that product development cycle. Um, 
the irony of that whole thing is that a few of the things that we quote unquote killed are actually going to launch later this year in different forms because product development is not 30 days long. Right. It takes months to actually create a high quality product. And so it'll come full cycle and you'll actually see some of the things that will go live that we said we had previously killed, but it was because we finally got to the idea that made sense. And so a lot of these founders are just getting just absolutely destroyed on Twitter because they're not following their roadmap to the exact way that they laid it out there. Hmm. And so I think people were taking, and this is our fault, this is on us as founders, we called it a roadmap, but it should never have been a roadmap. It should have been a, a, like the back of the napkin. And so that's been really challenging to like air out that dirty laundry to show that development cycle that typically takes place in any startup. Um, and so that's a lesson learned. So now, you know, for us, it's been less talk and then just, you know, we talk about something when it ships more or less, right? right. And so we've done more of more that this year. A more typical web two approach exactly. to product release. Exactly. Like you don't ask Apple for every prototype they've been working on, right? You wait right. for their events three times a year, right? right. So and Bobby yeah. yeah, I would love for you I to mean talk I about think it. that's symbolic of the culture in general. Everybody wants everything right now. And again, everyone's rushing to judgment and verdicts. Uh, I think a lot about my children. We can't even go to Disneyland or on a trip to San Diego without them YouTubing the entire experience before they get there. They need to know everything that's going to happen. And maybe it's because we're just living in a fraught world and anxiety is at an all-time high and people just want the ground to be a little bit more settled before they step foot on it. And I understand why. So like, I think we can all empathize as to why everybody was so urgent about where exactly is this project going? You have to tell me right now, my money's on the line, my livelihood's on the line, my reputation's on the line, we need to get there and get there. But the converse of that is that brands, as Kevin and I both know, and this is great that you had us both on the stage to speak to this because we've been around for two decades, is that the way that we've cultivated our brands and our careers over time is that if I had written a roadmap from the very beginning, I never even wrote, I still have, don't have a mission statement or a business plan for the hundreds or any of the other businesses that I founded along the way. Because as an artist and a creator, as an entrepreneur, these things were never meant to be relegated to what we had initially embarked upon. At first, I just wanted to make t-shirts because I was inspired by what a skate brand called Supreme was doing in the 90s and a bathing ape was doing in Japan. And I wanted to write stories around them. No one had really done that. And then that turned into denim, and then denim turned into stores, and then all of a sudden we were running a food festival at a print magazine, have a television show, and doing all, and then we get into Web3. If we had written a roadmap or a business plan in 2003, there would not be NFTs on there, and we would have been limited as far as how broadly and how vastly this project could have become. And so I think we need to allow the forgiveness and the room for founders, creators, artists, and entrepreneurs to create. We want to let them fail and make mistakes over and over again, because as we all know, tech and science is all about making these errors and correcting them and then getting closer and closer to the truth, right? So we have to do this. You know, people call anyone out now for stumbling. You can call it cancel culture. You can call it like whatever's been happening with NFTs over the last couple of years. And everyone's quick to jump on and be like, you f***ed up, you're out. And it's just like, wait, up was a part of getting to a better place. Like you have to let people f up. 
I've never been a fan of a brand, an artist, or anybody who's had a perfect, seamless career. It's insanely boring. It's not innovative. It's not disruptive. It's not creative to me. The other thing that's challenging, though, I'm sure you feel this as well, is that when it's tied to someone's pocketbook, it's especially emotionally triggered, right? That's a huge trigger. And it's a very strange thing as a founder. This is like just in the spirit of complete transparency. It's like, I don't know how you feel, but when 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 we first sold our NFTs, I felt, okay, we put this baby out into the world. We sold it. Let's call it like a a, a moped or or whatever it is, like the price-wise. Like it went out there and it was sold. And then other people started taking it and running with it and selling it as, you know, a, a Honda Civic and then all the way up to, and I'm like sitting there being like, well, I didn't sell that. I sold a moped that we were going to go have fun with for a few years. Yes, I'm providing the warranty on it. I'm doing all the maintenance and everything, but it just keeps going and going and going. And you're like, how do I ever live up to that expectation? And so it is insanely challenging emotionally to be able to support this community because you, these are your fans. These are people you care about and you meet them at meetups and it's like, we got to keep going. The good news is I think that the founders that have the grit and the heart, it's not going to be about six months building. It's not, it's going to be about, you know, years and decades of building to deliver value slowly over time, real connection, real community over time, the intangibles over time. It's the reason why, you know, I think the best founders you see keep showing up, right? Like Betty's sitting over there, like other NFT founders, they just keep showing up. Every conference I'm at, they're still there. It's not about what their price is, it's about that they continue to build and execute. And I think that's what we have to celebrate right now. It is one of the best parts about this current climate in this bear market. Things have slowed down a little bit. And so I think the expectations are aligning a little bit more fairly across the board. You know, I always have not this. Not for every project. but yeah. Not for every project. But I think the days of, oh, if I buy any JPEG right now, I'm going to be able to sell it for $100,000. Right. Like, we all remember those days. They were crazy. No one got any sleep. You're checking OpenSea prices every morning. Everyone is just, like, going mad. Uh, that's gone. You know, but one of my favorite misaligned expectation stories is in early 2021, we did a Super Bowl collaboration and everyone was looking to NFT projects who was going to do the Super Bowl collaboration and we were like we actually have an official Super Bowl collaboration with the NFL it's being sold in the stadium it's the only one like they haven't approved anybody it's with us and then everyone's just like great and then we brought it down it was a jacket and everyone's like what the f- is this you told us you're doing a Super Bowl collaboration we're like yeah yeah it's right here and they're like we wanted a commercial and I'm like, that's not a collaboration. That's an advertisement. Right. We worked with the NFL on this. And then we just got completely flamed for it. And it was it actually was kind of funny because I was just like, there's nothing I can do. The narrative is entirely outside of my hands. If this is what people want to believe, they're going to take it and run with it. I only have so much power. Right. I, I wanted a commercial. That was probably me. I'm sorry about that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we got to wrap up. We're, we're at time. I want to rephrase the same question about what will history say. And what I want to ask you, and Kevin, you said maybe it's going to say it happened and it's gone. But if the analogy is, you mentioned the Super Bowl, if the analogy is football, is Web3, are we still in the dugout or in the, in the, in the locker room? Are we on the 20-yard line? Are we on the 50-yard line? Where do you guys think we are in one sentence in this Web3 journey? Well, there's no dugouts in football, right. but that said... Um, <laughs> That, that's the quote, right? I'm just right? kidding, <laughs> shit, sorry. I, I think that um, 
if, if I had to predict, I think there's going to be verticals of winners here. I think that art is going to be a durable one and that, you know, the X copies, the Beeples, like this is just a new canvas for them to do very creative things that they couldn't do before. So dynamic, living, breathing art is encapsulated and cemented in the blockchain is absolutely going to be a thing that decades from now we'll point back to and say, okay, that one won. Um, tied to real tangible products, I think is another huge winner where the provenance of a product can be stored and kept in perfect condition and then redeemed and burned at a later point in time. I think about uh, a winery that we're working with to do something very similar where you don't have to ship expensive wine around the world. You can just hold the NFT and a decade later redeem it in perfect quality, non-forged, non-fake juice, like directly from the manufacturer. That is like one very simple application of NFTs tied to physicals that I think are just going to be pervasive. I think you're going to see that a bunch across a handful of different industries. And there's probably another dozen in there that we haven't even dreamed up yet. Right. The ones that I'm scared about is this commoditization and, and, and just penny stock-like trading of rapid fire. How can we just like quickly, you know, the, the, the bot and flipping mentality that I worry, not in that it shouldn't exist, because don't get me wrong, if someone has figured out that this exists in stocks and everything else, so it's not like it's, I'm saying this should be banned, I'm worrying that that's eating up all the press headlines and it kind of demonizes the entire space, which right. turns off people from those other sectors, which, which bothers me. But uh, nothing about the underlying technology is broken. NFTs are here to stay. I don't think they're, some of them are a scam, so I, maybe I'd cross it out on the book a little bit to put some or some. Some, some, right but there. That's my take. Buddy, I, uh, 60 seconds. Yeah, um, I, look, I think I'm, I come at it from the collectibles approach, and collectibles are only getting bigger and bigger as an industry. In cards, for example, it's going to be 20 billion. It's already kind of a $20 billion industry in the secondary, and I think there's only a future ahead for that. And, and to Kevin's point... Uh, I think we need to be mindful of the balance between trading, flipping, and selling, and also the culture. Uh, we've seen this happen in so many cycles of streetwear and sneakers over the last 20 years. There are seasons where it's only about flipping and reselling, and then there's not enough emphasis on the culture. It becomes very transactional. I've, I've written a lot about ComplexCon. The second ComplexCon, it was 80 to 20 transactional to art. And that conference, that convention, if anyone was there, it was horrific. There were fights breaking out in lines or people that were not endemic to the culture that were only there to flip shoes for money. They're taking advantage of other young collectors. And then they rebalanced the dynamics of Complex Content and, and made it more that there was art and culture on the floor. And then the eBay booths or whatever were kind of in the back. And that made for a more holistic and balanced ecosystem. And so I'm not against flipping and trading, selling either. Obviously, I think that's a big part of collecting whether it's fine art, cars, luxury handbags, Rolexes, or JPEGs. Uh, but we've gotten so far away from the most important and integral part of it, which is putting the spotlight on the creators, the communities, the culture, the brand building, all of that. And that's like really what I'm about. One last little quick thing Please. to add, I think that's just so important, is that this is the time and the moment that collections in general just need to lock arms and say we're in this together. We can't be putting each other down. I just see way too much on Twitter. It's very toxic. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it drives me personally away from Twitter. And I just, I feel like, like 
I love my apes. I love like we, we got we got to work together if this is going to succeed. Because if we're if we're fighting, anyone that comes into the space and sees it's a it's a brawl is like and they they don't own anything. They're like I'm out. I don't I don't want any part in this. And that, that just can't be. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.